You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, while some Bay Area cities are poised to end mask mandates, the California Report goes to Los Angeles to examine the city's strict new vaccination ordinance. With COVID taking up our mental bandwidth, along with fires and oil spills, some folks are struggling with saving water, too. After a roundup of regional news and weather, Bravehearts is back, and we close with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. You can add L.A. to the growing list of cities with a strict COVID-19 vaccine mandate for indoor places. Yesterday, Los Angeles' city council passed an ordinance requiring proof of vaccination to enter many indoor businesses, city-owned buildings, and large events. With more, here's KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb. This covers all types of businesses, from coffee shops and restaurants to museums, nail salons, and yoga studios. Anyone who is eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine must show proof that they've got the jab before entering those locations. We can't afford to have another shutdown again. That's L.A. City Attorney Mike Feuer, whose office wrote the ordinance. How many of us know people, senior citizens, families, who are reluctant to go to these locations like restaurants and so on because they're not sure if other people are vaccinated or not. There are legitimate medical and religious exemptions, but there's concern, especially among members of the business community, that the new rules may become confusing. Stuart Waldman heads up a business group called the Valley Industry and Commerce Association. Going from North Hollywood, it's a quick jump over to Burbank. Uh, And if they're not going to be enforcing the same rules, Uh, That lacks consistency. The city of Los Angeles is the largest in L.A. County, but there are 87 others sandwiched together, each with their own, often looser, rules. Enforcement by the city is still a little unclear, but it will start in earnest on November 29th. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, Bay Area health officials are expected to announce criteria later today for when the region might be able to lift its indoor mask mandates. The criteria will include metrics that cities and counties would have to hit to end masking indoors, like COVID-19 case rates, hospitalizations, and vaccine rates. Most Bay Area health officials restored the mask mandate in early August, despite high vaccination rates across much of the region. Only Solano County currently doesn't have regulations in place, requiring masks to be worn in most indoor public settings. Support for the California Report comes from Real California Milk, reminding listeners to take three simple steps to recycle gallon milk jugs. Pour it, cap it, bin it. Learn more at RecycleTheJug.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement, and Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Let's turn to the environment. And does this ring familiar? As California's drought persists, there's once again a tension on saving water and a renewed push to make our homes and gardens more water efficient. Put that in the hole and let's see where we are. Uh, We go down just a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more. 
We saw this recently in Los Angeles's Eagle Rock neighborhood, where with a little digging help from Mayor Eric Garcetti, drought-tolerant trees and plants were being planted in the front yard of a single-family home after the grass turf had been ripped out. The turf is really at the top of the water users. Expert gardener Marion Simon is leading this front yard makeover. She says if you want to save water in a warmer urban or suburban environment, tearing out grass is key. So what we estimate in Southern California is turf uses about four feet of water a year. Compared to, let's say, a California native, which only uses like 10 to 12 inches. So it's a a 75% water savings. Speaking before he got his hands dirty planting, Mayor Garcetti said L.A. and many other California cities are ready to help people drought-proof their gardens with incentives like free drought-tolerant plants, mulch, and compost. My message is clear. This is easy, it's cheap, and if you don't do it, you are contributing to our climate emergency. In recent years, Garcetti says L.A. has replaced 51 million square feet of grass turf, saving more than 2 billion gallons of water. But this year, at least so far, Californians don't appear to be in a water-saving state of mind. In July, Governor Newsom asked state residents for a 15% voluntary reduction in water use. But according to the most recent numbers, water consumption is only down about 2% statewide. And in some places, like San Diego and L.A., water use has actually ticked up slightly. California Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot thinks people have been preoccupied with other things and only have so much headspace left over to think about the drought. I think that Californians have been focused on navigating through the pandemic, getting their kids back to school, figuring out their job situation, mm-hmm. other things on their mind. Crowfoot says if the drought persists through the winter, California might impose mandatory water reduction mandates. But he says he's reluctant to do it any sooner. Yeah, I think, you know, we're very sensitive about mandates on on residents for a couple of reasons. One, you know, all of us want to live our lives um, the way that we want to. And it's challenging when a government entity tells us what we need to do. But also because Californians have stepped up um, before and we want to make sure that um, we are judicious about the use of mandates so that they'll step up again. John Gagenhuber felt like he had no choice but to step up. He volunteered his home for this drought-tolerant transformation after seeing how California was changing around him because of climate change. I was just thinking, I was just telling the mayor last year, uh, this place was a... The San Gabriels were all on fire up here. We'd wake up to these red sunrises and all choked with smoke. and It was a hellscape. And the, the, the UN climate report has just come out and it's gotten worse. And Lake Mead is, you know, shrinking. And it's, uh, it's So to you, you know, this is like, hey, I can't change all of that, but I can change what's in my front yard. I can do my little part. And although rain is in the forecast for much of California this week, we're still very much in a drought. And finally, one of baseball's biggest rivalries will finally be showcased in the postseason as the Los Angeles Dodgers have advanced to the National League Division Series to take on the San Francisco Giants. Chris Taylor hit a dramatic two-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning last night, leading the Dodgers to a 3-1 to win over the St. Louis Cardinals. Here's Taylor after the game. These are the type of moments that um, you dream about and you live for, and um, you know I'll be able to look back on this for the rest of my life. 
The best of five series between the Dodgers and Giants begins tomorrow night at Oracle Park in San Francisco with the first pitch scheduled for just after 6.30. Good luck to the teams. And that is the California Report for Thursday, October 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you tomorrow. Unless you've been living in the proverbial cave, you probably know that on Friday, the San Francisco Giants will host the Los Angeles Dodgers in Game 1 of the National League Division Series. As sfgate.com notes, some quirks are involved in the matchup. It marks the first time the fierce rivals have faced off in the League Division Series, and the teams have the two best records in the league and in Major League Baseball this season. The rivalry brings with it decades of history and plenty of hype, and the ticket prices reflect it. This afternoon, two tickets to one game were going for $218 each on Ticketmaster, with fees included. Standing room-only tickets were $183 each. Seats behind home plate were ranging from $750 each up to $3,500 per ticket, and prices will no doubt go up as it gets closer to game time. Also from SFGate, the Grateful Dead fan base is one of the most devoted in all of rock and roll. We certainly know that here at KVMR. Thanks to Auction House Sotheby's, starting today, hardcore fans can purchase a shirt that was worn by Ron Pigpen McKernan in 1970, as well as hundreds of other items of dead memorabilia. Bidding has started on the lot, which currently includes 228 items. The highest-priced ones are two instruments, once owned by Jerry Garcia, a 12-string Guild Starfire, and an Earl Scruggs Master Tone banjo in its original case. Bidding for both instruments starts at $45,000. Also available is Garcia's customized Chrysler Fender Bassman amp. The auction ends a week from today. You can see the full list of items at the Sotheby's website. In the weather for our region, temperatures cooling to below normal into the weekend. Light rain and light snow accumulation is possible into early Saturday, mainly in the mountains. Due to snow forecast in the higher elevations, Caltrans closed Sonora Pass and Monitor Pass in the Sierra today, and Yosemite National Park has temporarily closed Tioga Road, the continuation of Highway 120 through the park. It's a good idea to check Caltrans for road closures if mountain travel is in your future. Looking to early next week, despite the precipitation in the forecast, the National Weather Service in Sacramento has issued a fire weather watch for Monday morning through Tuesday evening. The strongest winds are expected in the western portions of the Sacramento Valley into the northern San Joaquin Valley from Monday afternoon into Monday evening. Maximum wind gusts could reach 25 to 45 miles per hour, according to the National Weather Service. These winds, combined with low humidity and dry fuels, may lead to critical fire weather conditions into Tuesday evening. According to Ubinet.com, PG&E is closely monitoring the wind event on Monday for its potential for a public safety power shutoff. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, showers turning to steady light rain overnight. Chance of rain is 60% and the forecast low is 52 degrees. Cloudy Friday morning, partly cloudy in the afternoon. Slight chance of a shower with a high of 59 and a low of 47. 
The air quality in Grass Valley this afternoon was good with an air quality index of 10. Friday in Grass Valley, the air quality is forecast to be good with an expected AQI of 32. In Truckee tonight, overcast with rain showers at times and a low of 37. Chance of rain is 60%. Friday in Truckee, light rain early with breaks of sun in the afternoon, a high of 46 and a low of 24. Chance of rain, 70%. The air quality this afternoon in Truckee was good with an AQI of 16. Friday's air quality is forecast to be good with an expected AQI of 18. In Sacramento, cloudy tonight with a low of 54. Friday in Sacramento, morning clouds becoming mostly sunny in the afternoon with a high of 69 and a low of 48. Sacramento's air quality this afternoon was good with an AQI of 11. Friday's air quality is forecast to be good with an expected AQI of 26. Next up, Bravehearts continues its multi-part exploration of the partnership between law enforcement and social services and how it serves the unhoused of Nevada County. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. You're listening to part four of Bravehearts Betty Louise in conversation with social worker Kelly Gallagher, Grass Valley Police Chief Alex Gamelgard, and Grass Valley Police Officer Jonathan Brown. Hospitality House originally introduced the Peace Officers and Standards Training Curriculum, encouraging de-escalation and an awareness of mental health challenges, particularly in the county's homeless population. As part of the program, social workers and officers respond to calls and engage with the community together as partners. In today's segment, Kelly Gallagher walks us through what such a response might look like. What happens when you pull up to somebody and they're there needing something. I mean, how do you even assess what they need? So it really depends, right? Um, Everybody's needs are different. Um, We try to have like the basic things that people could use, like Jonathan mentioned, having bottled water is really big. It's really hot out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And being able to see somebody, they might not really talk to us, but they'll accept the water. Some people won't even accept the water, depending on how kind of guarded they are, their mental health symptoms. Like we have people who are very paranoid. They don't trust us to give them water. Um, There could be something in it. So um, we show up and assess kind of how well do we know this person? What do they need? They'll tell us. They're very direct. I need a hotel. Okay. Let me see if I can make a call. But like right now, the rumors are always out there that there's these motel vouchers. But really, there's not um, any kind of voucher in that way. And being able to provide someone with a motel room is very, it's pretty stringent because there's only so many rooms in this area to begin with. And then it's very costly. We get a lot of requests for motel rooms that unfortunately we can't connect people with. But um, usually through behavioral health, through there's other avenues that we connect them to to try and get things like that for them, if it's possible. 
Um, then of course there's the shelter. So we'll make shelter referrals. Like if somebody wants to, if somebody actually wants to go to the, to Utah's place, you know, we're happy to call and there's outreach beds available. So we might help connect someone to a shelter. We might help someone call their doctor or um, nurse Casey from the home team. You'll hear <laughs> she's a she's a frequent flyer with us. Um, we do lean on the home team a lot. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we do work pretty closely with them. Um, so it's really just we get out, we talk to people. It sounds so simple, you know, and and it is simple in one way, right? We show up and we just keep showing up. And I think that's the important part is the person might be having a good day, you might be having a bad day, but we keep showing up. Yeah, I was struck by this phrase, progressive engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems like one of the keys mm-hmm. to have that first contact with them, very, you know, simple and easy unless they want more, and then slowly but surely develop some kind of relationship with them where they finally end up waving to you. <laughs> it was, so. yeah, and then to me that's a privilege. Like for, like mm-hmm. that gentleman that, that Jonathan's mentioning, he um, doesn't appear to like women very much. Mm-hmm. Like we've just seen in his interactions. And um, so, and that's the other good thing about our team is that we have a male and a female. So, mm-hmm. because some people don't want to talk to either gender for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. we have that going for us in terms of being able to meet people where they're at better. It's just really baby steps. It depends on the person, though, right? Everybody's different. Um, But the particularly hard-to-reach ones, like, we have to move really slow, and it is just a wave or a bottle of water, maybe some socks. Would you say that commonly when you're starting to engage with someone, it's and you mentioned showing up, but they haven't had anyone showing up in their lives for a long time? They've lacked that, and so now you're creating that peace, but you can't just walk in and all of a sudden have that trust. Right. You can't expect... um, Someone to just be like, hey, yeah, you know, I've been traumatized. I was molested by my dad and who knows what trauma people have gone through. And then we just show up and someone may have had a traumatic episode with a police officer, for all we know. Or someone had a social worker take their child. So, you know, we have to be really mindful about people's traumas and what could be affecting our opportunities to interact with them. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. This week's episode of Brave Hearts was edited by Kelly Reese. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet Last week, a friend invited me to a potluck dinner party based on recipes from Zanzibar. After I promised to bring tropical fruit salad and got off the phone, I raced into the bathroom to find Zanzibar. I knew it was part of Africa, but was it a country, a city, an island, a region? Was Zanzibar a colonial name for somewhere that now had a more politically correct title. I scanned the shower curtain. I think Babar and Celeste, beloved elephants from the French children's stories, came from Zanzibar. I found Madagascar and Ghana, Botswana, Rwanda, and South Africa. I reminded myself where Iraq and Iran are so I don't become one of those stupid Americans who can't find them on a map. But there was no sign of Zanzibar that far north. 
I paused to be amazed all over again at how far above the U.S. Europe is. San Francisco and Washington, D.C. are on the same latitude as Madrid. I looked at Tanzania and Kenya while a Paul Simon tune ran through my head from the album he did with Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Running into the bathroom is not really an adult response to questions of geography, but I've just never been very adult. For the last 20 years, I've had a map of the world shower curtain. I've had six of them. Somewhere out, you know how they break through around the holes and you patch the tear with a little duct tape, but then they rip again? And some become so politically outdated they're worse than useless. I got the latest so I could see Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania's outlines again, not just the huge pink kitchen sink of the Soviet Union. My Aunt Via comes from Latvia, and I have a proprietary interest. The shower curtain is perfect for big-picture questions. Where's Svalbard in relation to Spitsbergen? Where the heck is the Caspian Sea? Or if I'm reading Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin novels about Napoleonic naval battles, I can find Brest, Gibraltar, and Mahone. But Zanzibar was hiding. I sat down on the closed toilet lid and searched Africa inch by inch. Nada. All right, on to plan B. I plucked my Webster's pocket Atlas of the World from a bookshelf in the living room and finally tracked it down on page 133. Not just one island, Zanzibar is an archipelago on the southeast coast of Africa, above Madagascar, and is the top worldwide producer of cloves. It united with Tanganyika to form the country of Tanzania in 1964. I was nine and it's only about the size of Detroit, so it would never show up on a shower curtain. Having located Zanzibar, I could go to the dinner with a clear conscience. We ate coconut rice, chicken kebabs, deep-fried lentil balls, and two tropical fruit salads. Mine had papaya, mango, lime, and blueberries. Blueberries are not strictly tropical, coming primarily from Maine, but I couldn't help it. They looked so good, and I like to bend the rules at least a little bit, whenever possible. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30 p.m., it's a half hour of Money Matters. Host Mark Cunaberti looks for patterns in the recent whipsaw bounces of the stock market. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. If you missed any stories or just want to enjoy them again, visit kvmr.org or listen to the KVMR News wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR thanks its business supporters, including Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street.
Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And Ghost Town Woodworks, sustainably sourced woodworking and slab flattening off Evening Star near the ReStore, Grass Valley. Hosting an open house October 9th and 10th, featuring various handcrafted, exotic, and native wooden tables. Photos on ghosttown.net. And thanks a million to you, our listeners, who are stepping up to support community radio and independent media during KVMR's membership drive. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a great evening. Thank you.